0: The text of our sermon this morning comes from the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 and the 28th verse. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. I spoke to this passage before when we were considering the headship of Christ and of the husband in verse 23, we spoke of how this whole passage is like a wonderful tapestry that we have intertwined, seemingly in a way like in a tapestry with the weaving of different colored threads throughout, we have a going back and forth, constantly it seems, between speaking about the relationship between the husband and his wife and the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And so, at times, it's almost a challenge just to keep up with which part of the tapestry we're looking at when we consider the verses of this passage. For example, in verse 32... After speaking about the husband and the wife, for we read in verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The apostle immediately after that in verse 32 says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So even though he was clearly just speaking about husband and wife, here the apostle is saying, oh, but I'm speaking about, Christ and the church. Not that he wasn't speaking about the husband and the wife, but the point is, the Lord God was pleased in the instituting of the covenant of marriage to paint a picture, as it were, of the relationship between God and his people, and particularly between the Redeemer and the elect. Christ and his bride which he beautifies, as we see in this passage in verses 26 and 27. And so, though our text this morning comes from verse 28, where we read, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, he that loveth his wife loveth himself, we must not forget, as we consider this text, that it is within this tapestry We must not cut it out, as it were, and have this sampling of the cloth, the swatch. But we must keep it where it is intact, within the larger, marvelous tapestry that we see here in the Word of God, if we are to properly understand it. And so, what that means is, as we look at this, these words, so all men to love their wives as their own bodies, we can't help but to think about the union, not only between the husband and the wife, but again, between Christ and the church. And so with this in mind, I'd like to consider just two heads this morning for this sermon. And I'm just basing these heads on these two phrases in our text, in verse 28. First head is what is meant here when the apostle says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. What does it mean that they should love as they love their own bodies? Secondly, as we read in the verse, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. What does that mean? That the husband, as he loves his wife, is actually but loving himself. That's what the Scripture is teaching us. And so to the first head. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. You see, this language, where we read that a wife is like the husband's own body, again, we cannot escape from this notion that we see throughout the passage that we're really talking about this union between the husband and the wife, and Christ and his bride. Even so, in just a couple verses after our own text, we see the apostle, as he is borne along by the Holy Spirit, as we read in Peter, refer to the scripture in Genesis. And though the text in verse 31 is an obvious Uh, allusion to Genesis chapter 2, 24, I would suggest that verse 30 also is an allusion to that passage in Genesis. For we read in Ephesians here in verse 30 that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now here again in this tapestry, we've just spoke of Christ in the church as we see In verse 29, even as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. And then it goes on in verse 30 to say, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Is this not an allusion to that poetical praise that Adam speaks when the Lord God brings the woman, Eve, unto him? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, we read, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. When we read that text, we must keep in mind that Adam here is praising the Lord God, that this is an expression of praise for the good gift that the Lord provided to Adam. For as we read earlier in the passage in Genesis, the Lord God himself said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good. There is something lacking. There is something that's not complete. Even in a pristine environment, even in the Garden of Eden, there was something amiss, as it were. There was something not quite right. There's something that wasn't yet fully satisfied. What was that? It was that Adam though he was perfectly sinless, and let's not forget that, in his state of innocency, this was spoken of in respect to Adam. Though he was perfectly innocent, though he was in a perfect, perfectly pleasant garden of Eden, he was lonely. That's what it says. That's what God says. He says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will give him a helper that's suitable to him or meet." for him. And so the Lord shows Adam all the animals that he created. And using this very same language we read at the end of verse 20 in Genesis chapter 2 Among all the animal kingdom there was not found an help suitable or meat for Adam. You see, it's as if the Lord God was showing Adam how First, that there was this need, this loneliness, but that it could not be met by any other than by the woman that he was about to create. And so indeed, right after the Lord teaches Adam, as he names all the animals, that he can't find anyone that's suitable for him, immediately after that is when we read in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept And he, that is the Lord God, took one of his ribs, one of Adam's ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Like at that place, the Lord God closed up the flesh. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a woman. And so again, when we come to verse 23, don't think that Adam is just saying something academic, something matter of fact. Oh, I see, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. No, he is exuberant. This is, as I say, these are words of praise unto the Lord. Adam says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It is as if to say, Yes, Lord, this is the one that you intended that's suitable for me. This is the help that is meet to me because she is even bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the name he gives helpmeet that God brings to him, that God fashions out of his rib and brings to him, Adam calls woman. And why is that? Because she was taken out of man. So even that, we should understand the context of his praise. This is so wonderful, Lord. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, I'm going to call her woman. That is to say, this is in the spirit of my praise. This is based upon The thought of my praise, I'll call her woman. Praise be to the Lord God. I'll call her woman because she was taken out of man. See, that's that's the sense of it. And so as we turn back to Ephesians and we read in chapter 5, verse 30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. See how the wording is so similar to Adam's words back in Genesis chapter 2, 23, where Adam speaks of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the apostle here in Ephesians speaks of flesh and of his bones, of his body. And so as we say, at this part of the tapestry that we're looking at, it's speaking about the Lord loving, the Lord nourishing and cherishing the church for, verse 30, for, you see, it's because we are members of his body, of whose body? Of Christ's body, of his flesh and of his bones. And it might sound strange to say that we, the people of God, the people in the church here, are of Christ's bones and of Christ's flesh. Of course, we don't mean that Literally. But it's a powerful statement here in the Word of God. And it is figurative, but it's very powerful in saying that we are members of Christ as the church, even as Eve was a member, as it were, of Adam's body. Do you see the connection? That's the beauty here of this tapestry. That even as Eve is of the bones and of the flesh of Adam. So, that same kind of union, that same kind of, of, of bond, of intimacy, is what we find in the marriage relationship between the man and the woman. Though in verse 30, it is speaking of Christ and the church, but at the same time, as I say, verse 30 is making an allusion back to Genesis, where it's speaking about the husband and the wife So rich is the word of God. And so he continues, the apostle continues, after reminding us of Adam's words when the Lord God brought Eve to him, the apostle repeats the words from Genesis chapter two verse twenty four, where we read For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Did you know that this verse is repeated four times in the Bible? This is an important verse. This is an important verse for us to understand marriage. In fact, I read somewhere, I'm sorry I don't have the quote in front of me, but we cannot understand the marriage relationship between the husband and wife properly unless we understand the relationship between Christ and the church. And similarly, they went on to say, we can't understand the relationship between Christ and the church without the picture or the type of the relationship of the husband and his wife. And that's exactly what this passage is doing for us. It's joining together these two things, these two unions. And as we read here at the end of this verse, which is quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, here at the end of verse 31 in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, And they two shall be one flesh. Again, speaking about the union between the man and his wife, they are one flesh. In marriage, one plus one does not equal two, one plus one equals one. The two shall be one flesh. And as Christ says in the Gospels in another place, let not man put asunder or separate or divide or cut into two. What God has joined together. That's what happens in marriage. The two, the man and the woman, become one flesh. Again, just like Adam and Eve just as Eve was taken from the rib of Adam, so now she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And that's what happens even today when a couple is married. They become one flesh, as if they are, of each other's bones and of each other's flesh. Such is this intimacy, this, this deep bond that occurs in marriage, and so it should not puzzle us then when we hear of people who are miserable in their experience of divorce, because a divorce is like a ripping apart, a severing, like as if there's a now a jagged edge on both sides because by force this this one flesh, this one flesh that God has joined together in divorce is now torn raggedly. And so, we're not surprised as well to read in Malachi that God hates divorce. And we should not be surprised that divorce brings such great misery. I want us to consider, as we're still speaking about this first head, that men ought to love their wives as their own bodies, we have to remember this one-fleshness, if you will, this one-fleshness between the man and the woman, between the husband and his wife. And that is the backdrop to this idea here in our text, that the husband is to love his wife as his own body. Because they are one flesh. We can also speak to it in this sense, the same sense that we had spoken of before from verse 23, in the sense of the headship. That the husband is the head of the wife. The headship, as I said before, is really such a profound concept in the Bible. And so here, when it says that the husband is the head of the wife, in verse 23, it's a picture for us of the human body, where the man is the head, and the wife is the rest of the body. And again, this should make us think, does it not, immediately of the same metaphor being used for Christ and his body. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in a well-known passage about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle uses this same metaphor. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. We read, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, So also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into the one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And we read of Christ back in our passage in Ephesians, in verse 23 that Christ is the head of the church. And so there's this picture for us with words to help us to understand the teaching. Christ, in his relationship to the church, is like the head in his relationship to all the members of his body. In the same way, though, the Scripture is speaking of the husband and his wife. The husband is like the head of a body, and the wife for all the members of his body. There's another place I want to look at in this connection in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. It uses the same metaphor. Colossians 2, verse 19. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. So again, speaking of Christ as the head from which all the body, the church, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Note also in this text how it speaks of nourishment. And yet also in our passage in Ephesians, it speaks to the same thing. In verse 29, For no man hath ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. Do you see how Scripture is constantly referring to itself? There's these constant ties of internal reference within the Word of God. Again and again and again we see that. And so, what we're saying is, in respect to this first head, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. What we're saying is that the husband should love his wife because he is one flesh with her. He is the head of her. It is as if, speaking of his own body, that he is the head and his wife is the rest of his body. And that, as we said, the two have become one flesh. And so for all these reasons that we see woven within this tapestry, therefore, verse 28, our text, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. That's the sense of this text, of these words. That husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because, metaphorically, they are their own bodies. They are head to their own body, which is their wife. They are one flesh, even as it was between Eve and Adam, that she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Because of all these things, you see, the husband should love his wife as his own body. That's the sense of this text. Let us continue with the second head. The second head from the second phrase in our verse here in verse 28 where we read he that loveth his wife loveth himself he that loveth his wife loveth himself now you may say in that rightly that this is very closely related to the first phrase for in the first phrase we were taught that a wife is the husband's own body and so ought to love her as such. And in this second phrase, it says to the same import, but from a different angle or perspective, as it were, that when the husband does love his wife, he's really but loving himself. He's just loving himself. And it goes on to expand upon this idea, this second phrase in our text, in the following verse. When it says, in verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. You see? You don't have to teach a man that he should love himself. You don't have to teach a man that he should take care of his own body. You don't have to teach a man that he should nourish it, that is, that he should eat and drink, that he should take care of his body for all those necessities of life. You don't have to teach someone that, that's natural. It's natural because we are born with this self interest. And in fact, our sinful nature has corrupted that self interest. So now we're so self interested that we become selfish and self centered which is even a greater aggravation of this admonishment to the husbands, you see. Not only should the husband love his wife because he loves himself, because that's the light of nature, says that man would take care of himself, but furthermore, in respect to his sinful nature, because we all have this propensity to be fixated upon ourselves, then how can you, O husband, not love your wife? because she is yourself. That's the teaching here. And when it says, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, you might say, well, wait a minute. What about men who abuse themselves? Or what about the case of suicide? Wouldn't that contradict here the sense of the text? For no man ever yet hated his own flesh? Well, before I just answer that question directly, let me quote from a few of the different classic Protestant commentaries that I looked at here on this phrase, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Matthew Poole says, that is no man in his right senses. No man hates his flesh absolutely, but rather he hates the diseases and miseries of his body. Matthew Henry says, no man in his right senses ever hated himself, however deformed, or whatever his imperfections might be. The Puritan John Trapp, on this text in his commentary, says that when, when again, when, let me just remind you of the words: "For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, Trapp says, "No man but a monk who whips himself or a madman." and the Westminster annotations say also something similar. They say, that is, no man in his right wits wrongeth his own body, though sometimes madmen tear their own flesh, and others, out of erroneous religion, either cut their flesh or flay it off, as the ancient heretics did, and the popish monks and friars, as they do at this day. And so, The scripture here, when it says that no man ever yet hated his own flesh, it is speaking in terms of the light of nature. Not from this corruption that we have in false religion, the self-flagellation of the Roman Catholics thinking by so doing they would grow in the piety of Christ. That must be a, a joke that the devil thoroughly enjoys. But in respect to the light of nature, it's natural for us to take care of ourselves. It's natural for us when we are hungry that we seek out food to eat. That when we're thirsty we seek out something to drink. That's the nourishing. The text goes on to say and cherishes it. It's natural for us to cherish ourselves. Right? You know... (laughs) It's a misunderstanding that we hear of when people speak of self-esteem and they say something like, well, if we are to be healthy as individuals, we need to learn to love ourselves. We need to learn to love ourselves better. In fact, they go on to say, in respect to the commandment of God to love the Lord God, and to love your neighbor as yourself, they say, oh, well, you see, in order for us to properly love our neighbor and to love God, we must first learn to love ourselves. But that's not the teaching of that text. Let's take a look at it in Luke chapter 10. And this same uh, saying of our Lord is, is repeated in the other Gospels, but in the interest of time, let's just look here in in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. I'll start in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, that is, tempted Christ, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that is the Lord, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he That is, the lawyer answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor is thyself. And Jesus replies, in verse 28 we read, Thou hast answered right, do this and you shall live. And then it goes on to a discussion about what is meant by the term neighbor. But Jesus is basically answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? And so, first, it is to love the Lord God, first and foremost, with all of who you are, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. And so, as I said, some people say, oh, I see, we are to love God, we are to love our neighbor, and we are to love ourselves. So, since loving ourselves is the foundation by which we can love The others by which we can love God and neighbor, we must work on loving ourselves. And perhaps this wasn't the best place, there's another parallel passage where it's clearer that the Lord speaks of it as two commandments. It's two commandments, not three. The commandment is to love God, to love your neighbor. It's not To love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. It's not three commandments. It's only two. The phrase, as thyself, is a way of explaining how, in what manner, we should love our neighbor. The second commandment. The Lord is not teaching us that we need to learn to love ourselves in order to love our neighbor and to love God. That's not what he's saying. He says that we should love God and we should love our neighbor as we are already in a habit of and a propensity to love ourselves. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take your self-interest, take your self-centeredness, take this fixation you have on yourself, on your own cares, how to provide for yourself, to nourish yourself, how you delight in yourself, you cherish yourself, if you can just take a little bit of the self-love that you're so bent to and turn it from inside out and redirect it to your neighbor, then you'll begin to be loving your neighbor as you should. That's the sense of these words. Not that we need to work on loving ourselves. We need to work on our self-esteem. What is a good self-esteem anyway? This is a remedy spoken in psychology for people who supposedly have a bad self-esteem. What is a bad self-esteem but a disappointed pride? Bad self-esteem is an esteem of yourself in which (laughs) you're not as high and mighty as you think you should be. That's what low self-esteem is. So the remedy is not to love yourself more because the problem is you love yourself too much already. The problem is is that we just think about ourselves. That's our natural tendency. We don't think about our neighbors. We don't think about others, what others need. We don't care about others. We care about ourselves. That's our natural inclination. We have the same idea spoken of in Philippians. Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 21. And let me, uh, starting in verse 19, this is about the Apostle Paul's commendation of Timothy. He says in verse 19 But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort. When I know your state, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. See? Timothy, he's committing to him as being unique in caring for others. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, "For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. That's our propensity. That's our natural inclination. Not only the self-interest, In the light of nature, but also our selfishness and self-centeredness in light of our sin and our sinful corruption. That's our propensity. Our propensity is not that we don't love ourselves enough. Our propensity, as we read here, is that we all seek our own. We all seek our own interests. We don't put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. That reminds me of another verse in Romans. This is the opening of chapter 15 of Romans. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. For as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. You see? This is an exhortation from the apostle that we ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. We should not just please ourselves. That's what it says here in the Bible. We should not just please ourselves, but let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. See, that's, that's contrary to our sinful corruption. That's contrary to our natural inclinations, our natural inclinations in respect to our sinful nature we want to please ourselves. We naturally don't want to please others. But no, the Apostle says that we should bear with the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves, but that we should please our neighbor for his good, even that he may be edified. And so, again, as we turn back to Ephesians... No man ever yet hated his own flesh because it's not natural. We will find a way to take care of ourselves at all costs. Look out for number one. That's our inclination. We will nourish ourselves and we will cherish ourselves. What does that mean, to cherish ourselves? means that we will think better of ourselves than of others. That we will delight in ourselves. That we will think only good things of ourselves. That we'll be quick to defend ourselves. If someone wrongs us, we'll be quick to speak up and say, No, you're wrong. I'm in the right. What I'm saying is the truth, and I'm a good person. You wrong me by saying this. That's our inclination. We're quick to defend ourselves. Because we cherish ourselves. We delight in ourselves. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. But again, someone might say, but you haven't answered the question, what about the case of suicide? (laughs) Well, I tell you that the murderous act of suicide is the ultimate act of selfishness and self-centeredness. And so, granted, in a perverse way, But nonetheless, the person who kills himself is necessarily doing it because they think that is the greatest good that they can pursue. That's why they kill themselves. If they didn't think that suicide was the best thing for themselves, then they wouldn't do it. It's that simple. Someone who kills himself thinks that there's something better, that that anything would be better than to continue in their present existence. And so they kill themselves. It's a very selfish thing. Apart from the great weight of the sinfulness, when God says, Thou shalt not kill, it includes killing ourselves, not just killing others. It includes not just harming others, but doing injury to ourselves. That's forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. It's a heinous, heinous sin with great aggravations that follow it and great misery. Not only for the person that kills himself, but for his family, his loved ones, his friends. It's a a horrible act. It's a horrible thing to do. Someone who does that, does it because they think that would be the best thing for themselves. That's what would be in their best interest, and that's why they do it. I tell you, again, that's our human nature. In fact, I apply it in this way, in respect to sin. Why do we keep going back to the same old sins, and we can speak of the idolatry of our hearts? There is an idol that we're serving in our lives that we haven't let go of and we don't fully understand it. We don't see it for what it is. Otherwise, we'd be horrified by it. But why is it that we keep going back to the same sins? In Hebrews, it speaks of the besetting sin. The Puritans took up that expression and talked about the besetting sin. That sin in your life that that seems to be the most prevalent sin, the most dominant sin in your life. That's the besetting sin. That's the idol of your heart, the chief idol, idol or several idols, but that's the chief idol of your heart. Why is it that we keep doing that again and again? It's because in our heart of hearts, in our atheistic hearts, we believe that in committing that sin again, that's what's going to be for the greater good in our lives. That that's what will be the best thing for us. And that's why we do it. It's because we believe in our idol instead of the true and living God and we do service unto the idol as we should serve the living and true God and we are still persuaded that this idol, this false God is a good thing. It's something that we want to serve. It's something that we want to worship. Something that we want to follow just like we should worship and serve and follow the true and living God. And that's why we keep going back to the same sins. It reminds me of that poem from John Don, the Hymn to, to the Father, where he has that repeating refrain that he has more. He has more. He has more sin. And that's why. If we ever got to a point where we saw the idols of our hearts for what they are, for what they truly are, then we would see that they're no longer for our good, and we would no longer commit sin in respect to them. So that was a bit of a tangent, but it just speaks to this human nature that we always do whatever we think is the best thing for our good. That's what we will do. And so no man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. And then it goes on to say, even as the Lord the church. So we, in our natural inclination, we will nourish and cherish our own bodies, even as the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are members of his body, will nourish and cherish us. See, that's the teaching here. And So let me just close with some application from our texts and from this passage. Well, the immediate and obvious application is that if we could but, again, if we could but turn what's inward outward, if we could turn that self-love that we naturally have for ourselves and be concerned more with the nourishing and the cherishing of our wives instead of ourselves, then by doing that, our love for our wives would look like the love of Christ for the church. And that is the exhortation from the Apostle here in this passage. As we read again in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And as Calvin says in his commentary, on our verse in verse 28 that every man by his very nature loves himself but no man can love himself without loving his wife therefore the man who does not love his wife is a monster Calvin says he is a monster for it would be a monstrous thing as a man not to take care of some member of his body right? right? You know, if you were in an accident and you lost an appendage of your body and you didn't care about it, wouldn't that be monstrous? You know, if you had some ailment and you didn't take care of it, you didn't go see a doctor and have it addressed, find out what it is, and be treated, wouldn't that be strange? Well... It's also strange and monstrous when a man does not love his wife for the very same reason. And so, husbands, we should try to reflect upon this. We should try to reflect upon what are the ways in which I love myself? What are the interests that I have that I'm always in pursuit of? What are the things that get me up in the morning that I'm so passionate about those things that are of my own interest. Think about those things. Think about what they are. And then challenge yourself to try to see what are those same sort of things in your wife. What are the things that your wife needs in her nourishment? Are you providing for her? What are the things that your wife needs in cherishing her. Do you cherish your wife? Do you love your wife? Do you speak kind words of affection to your wife? Are you affectionate with your wife? For the kiss, for example, is a universal token of love. Do you cherish your wife? Do you think highly of her? Is she in your thoughts? If you could just Take those self-interests and again turn them outward, in an outward direction, and think again, what about my wife? What are her interests? How can I build her up in the faith of Jesus Christ? How can I encourage her? How can I edify her? I want myself to be edified. I want to grow in the faith of Christ. I want to have a better understanding of the Scripture But what about my wife? Am I concerned about those things for her? Do I pray for my wife? Do I pray for her salvation, the fruition of her salvation? Do I pray for my wife's growth in the grace of Christ? How can I cherish my wife unless I'm praying for her? How can I cherish my wife unless I demonstrate my love for her? Again in verse twenty-five, we read that Christ gave himself for the church. He gave his all. Husbands, are you giving your all to your wives? Are you sacrificing yourselves for your wife, even as Christ sacrificed himself for the church? You no, know, love, that is the truthful understanding of what true love really is, is not like the love we see in the Hollywood films or that we read of in certain novels. Love is not just this flash in the pan, this passion of the moment. Love is not simply eros. That's just one part of it. Love is sacrifice. It's putting others before yourself. Love is doing things that you don't want to do in the name of love. You don't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway because you want to love your wife. I'll leave with one final principle on that point. There's an expression about marriage that the honeymoon is over. In any marriage, no matter how good it is, there will come a time when those rapturous feelings, those feelings of being in love with your spouse may ebb and may uh, dim and grow faint. But that's okay. It's okay because emotion is not something that can always be sustained by the very nature of what emotion is like. And so love is not simply emotional. Emotional but it's a commitment and a sacrifice. And so here's the principle I wanted to leave you with, that when we choose in the name of love to act in kindness towards someone, even when we don't feel like it, a wonderful and surprising thing happens. As we continue to do that, as we continue to act in love, suddenly we'll find that our feelings are changing, that our feelings follow our actions, that as we act in love, even though we don't want to do it, even though we're tired and miserable and we don't want to think about other people at times, we're burned out on things, but if nonetheless you act in love, you'll find that your feelings change and now you're enjoying doing the thing that you most dreaded to do. And now, though you didn't feel like loving your wife, now you have these warm feelings for her. Just because you, in self-discipline, made yourself made yourself, love your wife in a loving action, then the feelings will naturally follow. Men ought to love their wives as their own body, for he that loves his wife is but loving himself. Let us pray. O great eternal God and heavenly Father, we do confess that we are unworthy of these things, that these things are above us, that in ourselves, it's not according to our nature, especially as sinners, to love one another. And even though we are to love our neighbor, how much more are we to love our wives, because they are one flesh with us. And yet, O oh Lord, we cannot even do that. We cannot even do what is natural in loving ourselves, that is to love our wives because of our own propensity to self-centeredness and selfishness and sin. O God, then, we plead for your Holy Spirit to be with us as we as men love our wives because it's not anything that we can do in and of ourselves. As Christ said that without Him we can do no good thing. We certainly can't then Do that good of loving our wives as ourselves or loving our wives as Christ loved the church. How immeasurable is that love of Christ. And yet we are to love our wives in the same fashion. Oh God, have pity upon us. We are miserable sinners. But we pray be glorified in our lives even that by the grace of Jesus Christ more and more we may love better, we may love more and more our wives. Hear us now, for we do pray in the name of that bridegroom, the groom of all grooms, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.